Well, thank you, Dr. MacArthur. I want you to know what a blessing it was to have him to share in the ministry at Cedarville College. It was certainly one of the highlights of the academic year for us back in January as he ministered for two days. And at Cedarville College, uh, we pray for Master's College. We are grateful for what God is doing here and for what God is doing through all of those Bible institutes, Bible colleges, Christian liberal arts colleges, and seminaries throughout the United States that stand upon this book, that are mission-driven and endeavor to honor the Lord. A few years ago, I was in uh, Germany speaking at a Word of Life leadership conference, and some people started to come, and, and they said, how do we get our students into Cedarville College? And as we interacted, I asked, why don't you send them to your own Christian colleges? They said, we don't have any. They said, there is not a Christian liberal arts college in Germany. There's not a Christian liberal arts college in all of Europe. They said, there are a few small, struggling Bible colleges, but that's about the extent of it. I started to reflect. Do you realize that we just had the first Christian liberal arts college approved in Canada a few years ago? That's our northern neighbor. And yet in the United States we have all of these Bible institutes like Word of Life and Moody Bible Institute and many other outstanding institutions. Bible colleges, Christian liberal arts colleges, seminaries in every region, in many states. We must never take that for granted. God has been very good to us in this land. Masters in Cedarville just happen to be a part of that. I'm sure you're like we are. I will not tolerate at Cedarville College the criticism of other Christian colleges. We're all in the same business together. We're swinging from the same side of the plate if we stand upon this book. And we better support one another and encourage one another and do everything we can to treat one another with godly respect and honor the Lord. And I'm just so honored that I could come and share in your chapel today and on Wednesday. I can remember years ago speaking in this chapel, also holding evangelistic campaigns on two occasions at Placerita Baptist Church with my friend Marv Troyer. We appreciate Dr. Duncan, many of your long-term faculty. We've known them for years and rejoice in what God is doing through the leadership of Dr. MacArthur. I want to ask you a question this morning. If I could give you one word that would guarantee you success in the 90s, would you be willing to put that word into your computer. Now, I think I can give you the word today and Wednesday, but it's up to you by the Spirit of God as to whether you program it in. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians chapter 1. I'm quite sure that as soon as I say Philippians, you Bible students conclude, I know the word. It's joy. 
For you are fully aware that 18 times in Philippians, the Apostle Paul uses joy, rejoice, or rejoicing. The key verse in the book is 4-4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, but that's not the word. Some of you more astute Bible students say, I, I know. It's the intellect. Because you know that ten times the Apostle Paul uses the word mind. Five times the word think. And one time remember in the book of Philippians. Sixteen times he stresses the intellect. Now, what does that say to this emotionally oriented, experience oriented Christianity that abounds in our land today? Somehow we have to beware lest there be a mindless Christianity. As we study the Word of God, God does emphasize the emotion, but He also majors on the intellect. And He wants to use both for His glory. The Apostle Paul was an emotional being. He wept. He manifested anger, fear, many other emotions. But he also used the mind God had given him for the Lord's glory. But that's not the word. In fact, the word I want to share with you today and Wednesday is not found in the book. But modeled by the author throughout his life and throughout the book. In fact, I would suggest that if you take joy and mind and marry those two words, you probably get this word. Listen carefully. The word that guarantees you and guarantees me success in the 90s is attitude. Chuck Swindoll said it. I believe it. Not everything he says. But this, life is 10% what happens to you, 90% how you respond to what happens. And to illustrate it, he tells the story of the great Niccolo Paganini who was up playing his violin. And as he played, all of a sudden the string snapped. Continuing to play, another string snapped. Going right on with the piece, the third string snapped. When he finished, standing ovation not only from the crowd, but from the orchestra, and he motioned for them to be seated. Is it possible he's going to play an encore? With one hand holding up the bow, and the other hand holding up the violin with the strings hanging down, he said, Paganini! And one string! And he went on to play another beautiful encore. They gave him a standing ovation in life. Is 10% what happens to you, 90% how you respond to what happens. Strings snap in the lives of college students. Sometimes it's a string that snaps in the classroom. Just the pressure of the academic experience. Sometimes there are strings that snap in the dormitory room, just the pressure of interpersonal relationships. Maybe some of you young ladies 
have already requested that next year you live with someone else. You'd like to change roommates. Some of you guys, things aren't going very well in that particular unit. For some of you, strings are snapping at home. A few days ago, we had our day of prayer, and when we had that particular emphasis, and we have the chapel, and then we move into a time of testimony and praise, and right uh, before we do that, I usually have the students just divide up into small groups, and everybody prays out loud, and you know, here's close to 2,000 kids just all over the, the chapel, and faculty, and staff, and everybody just praying. And what I usually do is I go out and just find me a couple of students and start praying with them, and I say, now, what are your prayer requests? And... John said, uh, well, I want you to pray for my brother. My mom and dad are getting divorced next week. It's tough on me. It's tougher on my brother back home having to live with that. Hey, some of you have had your parents to get divorced this year while you're a college student. It's amazing how many parents wait until their kids go off to college to get divorced. Or sometimes wait. I have graduates who call me. I have this thing with our kids. I say, if you've ever been a student at Cedarville College the rest of your life and you ever get in trouble, call me, collect. This kid calls me last summer. He said, Dr. Dixon, I graduated in June. He started to cry. He said, my dad's a physician. And my mom and dad are getting divorced. They waited until I graduated. Now they're getting divorced. Some of you have moms and dads who just aren't making it. Oh, the strings, the security strings that are snapping in your lives. Sometimes it's disease. Maybe you have a cancer. Or maybe you have some kind of a physical problem that maybe even makes it difficult for you to finish this year. For others, it's death. My guess is in this student body, you have had times of prayer for students who've had moms and dads to die this year. What a string to snap in your life. Or you've applied for a graduate school and you haven't been accepted. You've been looking for a job for this summer and you haven't been able to find a job. But strings snap in our lives and life is 10% what happens to us, 90% how we respond to what happens. Why is it that somehow in the cause of Christ, in fundamental evangelical Christianity, we have this pseudo-approach that somehow when someone says, how are things going? Great! Tremendous! Fantastic! No, they aren't all the time. No. Sometimes it's the pits. And you don't have to go around saying it's great when it's not. You don't have to act like you don't have any problems because you do. And I don't have to stand up here as a preacher of the Word of God and the president of a Christian college and act like things always go well. They don't always go well at the school. They don't always go well in my life. They don't always go well in the family. We have a great God. But He's the God of the mountains and He's the God of the valleys. And the Apostle Paul was going through some tough times when he wrote the book. He's under house arrest. He is having to defend his apostleship. 
He is being criticized by others who preach the Word of God and name the name of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of that, he says, well, I don't understand that, but I bless God that they are still preaching Jesus. I rejoice that Christ is being preached. How do you get an attitude like that? My response is, if they're going to criticize me, I'm going to find something that I can criticize about them. I have a tendency to be vindictive and to lash back, not the Apostle Paul. How do you develop that kind of an attitude? Well, what I want to do is outline the book. And I think if we study it chapter by chapter, just catch some highlights, it'll help us as we think about our own attitudes. Number one, in chapter one, he had the focus on Christ. Number two, in chapter two, he had the focus on Christians. In chapter three, he had the focus on heaven. And in chapter four, he had the focus on the positive. Now, let's take those one at a time. Chapter one, and I want you to underline something in your Bible. Start with verse four. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And just either underscore it or circle that fellowship in the gospel. Go to verse 12. I think one of the outstanding verses in the entire New Testament, I would, you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the, here it is again, circle it, furtherance of the gospel. Now, we're going to come back to that, but if you look up in your Bibles a moment, think with me. You mean, Paul, that everything that happens in your life is for the furtherance of the gospel? That's what he said. Verse 27, only let your conversation or your way of life be as it becometh the, here it is again, the gospel of Christ. You may want to just go through the first chapter and underline or circle every time you find the word gospel. Whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the, here it is again, circle it, the faith of the gospel. Now, if you put those three together in verse five, he talks about the fellowship in the gospel. Verse 12, the furtherance of the gospel. And in verse 27, the faith of the gospel. This guy is obsessed. Most of us are. With something or somebody. What was Paul obsessed with? Jesus Christ, who he was, and what he did. The gospel. Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died on a cross for sinners, was placed in a tomb and arose from the dead, and the Apostle Paul lived with a focus on Jesus Christ, who he was, and what he did. What a difference that makes in attitude. You see, he had experienced the Gospel. A lost religious leader who on a Damascus road in all of his sin meets Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for his sin, arose from the dead, he repents of his sin, received Jesus Christ by faith, his life is transformed, heaven is an eternal home, and he doesn't ever get over that. As learned, as well-versed, 
with all that he had going for him, he never got over experiencing the gospel. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have unsaved parents? Both of your parents are unsaved. Could I see your hands? I'd say somewhere around 40, roughly. How many of you, one of your parent is unsaved? Probably about the same number. Out of your student body, uh, I would assume around uh, 800 or so, you have maybe 10% of the student body who have one parent lost, both parents unsaved, which tells me that 90% of you are second and third generation Christians. It's not unusual. Same thing is true in our student body on almost every Christian campus in the United States. One of the great dangers for those of you who are second and third generation Christians is to take your salvation for granted. Is for the gospel to become old hat. To somehow live in the light of almost as, as if we deserved what Jesus Christ did for us. And if we can begin to focus on a regular basis of, on the grace of God And all Jesus Christ is and has done for us, what a difference it makes in our attitude. Most attitudinal problems we have as believers come because we've lost sight, lost focus on Christ. Apostle Paul not only experienced the gospel, he grew in the gospel. Why do we get the idea that salvation has to do with the gospel, but Christian growth doesn't? What did he say? You can quote it, chapter 3, verse 10. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. I mean, he, He lived in the light of the Gospel. He not only started out the Christian life in the Gospel, He moves and breathes and grows in the Gospel. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then, He spent His life sharing the Gospel. Most churches, most Christian institutions that have attitudinal problems are not involved in what Christianity is all about. And that's getting out the gospel, obeying the Great Commission. You know, I am so impressed with the spirit that I sense here. I realize somewhat superficial and that I've only been on the campus a couple of hours, been in your chapel. But I have to think that part of the spirit that is here is related to your involvement in evangelism and your involvement in missions. The schools, the Christian colleges, seminaries that lose sight of getting out the gospel lose their sense of mission. We had a junior-senior banquet two years ago in Cincinnati. We have this every year. You probably have something like it where the juniors do a bash for the seniors and we have several hundred who go to a big hotel and go in the formals and the flowers and things like that. 
and we bring in a Christian musician and it's a nice dinner and it's just a neat time. And Pat and I, Mrs. Dixon and I try to go every year. That particular year, I had to be out of town. But when I got back in town on Monday morning, I had kids waiting for me in my office. I generally speak on Monday mornings at Cedarville and so the kids like to share things with me that I can share with the rest of the student body. They say, did you hear what happened at the JS? I said, no. He said, we're in Cincinnati. That's about 60 miles from Cedarville. And it's over at about 11 o'clock, 1130. We're walking around and here's a big landmark in Cincinnati is Fountain Square. Beautiful fountains and steps. It's been there for decades. And here's this guy standing at Fountain Square preaching the gospel to a street people, hippies, you know, I mean... All kinds of people gathered around there. And so about 80 of us got in the crowd in our formals. We thought it was neat. This guy was preaching there at Fountain Square. So we just got in the crowd and listened to him. And when he got finished, the president of the senior class said, Hey, this is too good to stop. He said, I think I'll go up and preach a while. So he goes up in his tuxedo. And he's standing there at the JS, you know, and he's preaching the gospel and the kids start witnessing to those in the crowd. They said, Dr. Dixon, we led somebody to Jesus on Friday night. That's so great. No, I was thrilled. We went in the chapel and we all rejoiced together. The next Monday, they're back. And I mean, they're beaming from ear to ear. They said, guess what? I said, what? He said, we got so excited about what happened after the JS, we got some vans together and a whole crowd of us drove the 60 miles to go back to Fountain Square to do some more street preaching. And we saw some other people get saved last Friday night. And oh, we rejoiced together. And they said something I'd never heard a student at Cedarville College say. They said, President Dixon, we have become addicted to evangelism. Man. I heard of being college kids being addicted to drugs and being addicted to alcohol and all kinds of things. I'd never heard of college kids being addicted to evangelism. I can't think of anything better to be addicted to. The Apostle Paul focused his life in furthering the gospel. He said, I want you to understand in verse 12 that everything that happens to me It's all fallen out unto the furtherance of the gospel. You mean, Paul, you were under house arrest for the furtherance of the gospel? He said, absolutely. A sovereign God put me in this place and put these guards around me so that I could get out the gospel. You mean, Paul, that somehow this criticism that you're enduring and this persecution, even from people within the church, that that's of God, that you might get out the gospel? Absolutely, because I know that people are going to watch how I handle this. And that's the way they're going to see whether my Christianity is for real. Hey, young men, young women, a watching world is not interested in how you handle the good times at all. They do very well at that. They're interested in how you handle being at the free throw line And the game is on the line. Instead of making it and being the hero, you miss it and you're the goat. They want to know how you handle the bad times. 
They want to know how you handle it when the strings start snapping in your life. I want you should understand, brethren, that the things which have happened unto me have all fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Chapter 1, the focus is on Christ. Chapter 2, Paul got a godly attitude because of his focus on Christians. Let's, let's look at this beautiful passage. Many of you, no doubt, have memorized it. Verse 1, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy. Should be like-minded, having the same love, being a one accord and of one mind. Let nothing, absolutely nothing, be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. In the dormitory room, in the classroom, on the baseball diamond, in the faculty meeting, in the pastor's meeting, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And who's our model for this? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Listen carefully. Godly attitude never comes from a self-centered spirit. It only comes from a servant's spirit. An others-centered spirit. The problem we have in the body of Christ today, for those of us who know the Lord, is all of this violation of biblical principle about how we treat one another. I am frankly amazed at how we can get so caught up in external lists that have their measure of importance, but are certainly man-made and grossly violate the God-given lists on how we're supposed to treat one another. A few years ago, I was invited to speak at a national conference and bring the closing message. The whole conference was on revival. My topic was a revival of interpersonal relationships in the church. Quite an assignment. And on my mind just kind of functions this way. I ask the question, does anyone need this message? Do we have a problem of interpersonal relationships in the church? So I asked our psych department to help us. I said, would you please prepare a survey that I can give to 1,600 churches so I can establish what's going on in the churches? So we prepared the survey. It was a statistically valid survey. I think we had like 400 to 500 responses, which was very good out of 1,600. Evangelical, fundamental, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches. 
Maybe some of the churches in this area participated. This was the first question. How many of you have had a major split? I defined what a major split was in the last five years. Answer, 25%. Now you think that one through. 25% split. Couldn't get along. Had to divide. Another 5% said we're about to. Next question. What caused the split? Let me tell you what the answer they gave wasn't. It was not doctrine. It was not money. It was not divorce. It was not immorality. Now, I'm not saying those answers weren't given. But overwhelmingly, the response was, we split over interpersonal relationships. People couldn't get along with the pastor. Pastor couldn't get along with the people. People couldn't get along with the deacons. Deacon couldn't get along with the people. Or people couldn't get along with one another. They basically said, we split over unforgiving spirits. We split over bitterness in the congregation. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is addressing in Philippians chapter 2. They are having some problems in the church at Philippi with interpersonal relationships. And he said, wait a minute, time out. Our model is Jesus Christ. And here are the principles about how we're supposed to treat one another. And what did Jesus say, class? Did Jesus say that a watching world would know that we were for real by our doctrinal statement? And please don't underestimate what I'm saying here about doctrinal statements. The point is that the world does, they don't read our doctrinal statements. Jesus said the way the watching world would know that we were for real by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have what class? Now love. One toward another. How you doing in that area? In the dormitories. How you doing in the classroom? On the baseball team. Incidentally, I enjoyed watching um, almost all of the first game Saturday and a couple innings of the second game. A fine baseball team. Athletics has an interesting way of revealing relationships. How biblical principles guide us and how we treat one another. A godly attitude flows out of godly interpersonal relationships. How do you treat the oddballs on campus? Now, I'd like to think that you don't have any at Masters. Maybe we have them all at Cedarville. I don't know. But my guess is you have them. We all attract a few who are just a shade weird. And then that just goes with it. How do you treat those people? With love? I'll never forget walking up to a good pastor friend of mine and saying, why in the world did you send that guy to us? I mean, he's, he's nothing but a pain in the neck. He said, oh, he's improved 50% from what he used to be when he was back in our Christian school. I said, you're kidding. I didn't think you could get any worse. He said, no. He said, I can remember when his mother, a member of our church, ran off with another woman. And all of a sudden, I understood why a young Christian 
might be going through some struggles. And why needed a president who'd care and some people who'd be willing to look beyond all the idiosyncrasies and begin to find out what was really going on inside. Well, you have about uh, three weeks before this whole year is over. I know that announcement brings great sorrow to all of you. But let me ask you this. Are you willing, listen, to spend three weeks making that one young man, that one young lady who's thinking about not even coming back to this place next year because nobody cares, are you willing to focus on them and let them know that you love them? Are you willing to break out of your little clique that you've spent the entire year with and you're very comfortable with them to reach out beyond it to somebody who needs you and who needs to be loved with Godly Christian love. I'll guarantee you, it'll transform your attitude toward the Lord, toward people, toward the college, toward the work of the Lord. May God help us. As we realize that life is 10% what happens to us, 90% how we respond to what happens, to have a godly attitude. Would you stand with me for prayer, please?